to me, I think private practice allows you to build a culture in your organization that you are proud to work in. From Spa Dameron Tenney, it's the Prosperous Doc Podcast. Real stories, real inspiration, real growth. A show for doctors who are ready to improve their overall wellness in every aspect of life. Now here's your host, Shane Tenney. All right, welcome back to the Prosperous Doc Podcast. My name is Shane Tenney and glad to have you with us today for my conversation on the preservation of independent medical practices. You know as well as I do that the landscape of medicine has changed alarmingly over the last couple decades and private independent medical practices are just disappearing or being gobbled up as I think some would refer to it. According to medical economics, over 100,000 physicians have left private practice since 2019. The American Medical Association does studies every year on all kinds of things. And in 2022, they found that the percentage of wholly owned physician practices has dropped from 60% just a decade ago to now just a whisker above 45%. And while practice ownership has declined among physicians of all ages, the sharpest drop has been among those docs under 45 years old the next generation. We see the percentage of independent physicians in that category dropping from 45% to now just slightly less than a third. Well, we're going to talk about it today. My guest is a proponent and an advocate for the preservation of the independent medical practice. Dr. Christine Mayer is both a physician and an entrepreneur and business owner. Uh, it's almost 20 years ago that she and her husband both started their own independent medical practices on the same day. And she is here to talk with us today about the journey and the importance of private practice medicine. Christine, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So take us back to, I guess, the beginning or maybe even before the beginning. You finished training, you're looking at the landscape and somewhere in this mix, you and your husband decided, we don't want to go to work for a hospital. We want to try this ourselves or yeah. something like that. What was it like? Um, how did you guys start in medicine and what was the impetus for the onerous task of starting your own practice? Yeah. So like a lot of the best things in life, it started with the worst possible thing that could have happened to us, right? <laughs> so we actually were both employed physicians right out of training. I joined a practice of three older doctors and he joined a practice that was owned by one pediatrician. And we did that for a number of years, kind of under the thumb of our employers and both just saw things run very poorly, just bad business management of medical practices, which like it or not, bled into patient care. There's no way to say a business could be run poorly and provide excellent patient care. So we were growing more and more frustrated by our current situations. And then my husband had like a moment of clarity. He was like, I got to get out of here. So he left his practice. He found a little office, little in quotes, and came home one day and said, it's just this office I found is going to be great for me and a couple of people, but it's just a little too big. Like if we only had one more doctor and we were both like, ah, you could be that doctor. I could be that doctor. So let's do this. So that's really how it started. I was just kind of 
frustrated. He was frustrated. The building was a tad too big. And that was the beginning. And so now you guys are in two separate specialties, right? Yep. Your husband's pediatrician, you're an internist. And so what happened from there? Together, we make the ideal family practice, right? He takes care of the kids. I take care of the adults. I have no interest in seeing little kids. He has no interest in seeing adults. So we both got to do what we're great at, but we provided a service to our community where they could still come to one space and get the care that they needed for their entire family. And that was really our family took care of families. And that was the premise the practice was built on. And so fortunately, you and your husband were able to lean back on all of that business school training and, <laughs> and things like this to help you know how to start a business? Yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> Again, it was, you know, more bad decision after bad decision, but also a lot of being at the right place at the right time and having the right people. So for example, the first employee I had was my mother. She came on, she had just left Merrill Lynch after a career in finance. And she was like, I could learn medical billing. So we had this core group of super dedicated people, people who didn't take paychecks for the entire first three to six months working for us because they believed in us and believed in our mission to have this great practice for our community. And That's really how it started, you know, very lean beginnings and then learning how to keep things lean as the practice grew and then learning how to reinvest some of our financial success to grow the practice. That's really how it happened. There's a period of time in any startup business, call it the first year or maybe two, where survival is the impetus. There's a Mm -hmm. a compelling vision. We just have to survive. And then you begin to you get to a stage where it's like, okay, I think we're going to make this. I think we can afford to pay everybody or hire or grow a little bit. And the vision starts to expand. Talk a little bit about kind of that journey where that began to unfold for you when you realize this is going to make it. Yeah. So I had left my practice, as I said, and I moved quite a distance away. So physically, my new office was about 30 minutes from my original practice. I had been there for about four or five years, so developed a good patient following, but a lot of those people just didn't want to move that far, but a handful did. So I would say maybe a hundred or so patients followed me from my first practice to the new practice. And that was the good seed because they started talking to people and they talked to their friends who were closer and they talked to people on social media. And eventually word got out about our practice. In fact, that first year we did very little marketing was really all the new patients came by word of mouth. And I would spend as much time as each patient needed because I had all the time in the world. I was waiting for the phone to ring. you know. <laughs> so we just kind of really paid attention to that tiny, small group of patients. And as more and more patients came and our finances got stronger, we realized that we could start to grow our team. And honestly, you said a year, I would say it was three years. (laughs) It was three years before we really had confidence to like bring on new clinicians, for example, which is really where the revenue really starts coming in is as you expand the people who are seeing patients. So it was really just that, making sure we stay true to our mission from the very beginning. And then seeing that where we really needed to go was to add people to see patients. And as soon as we did that, the revenue started to flow. Yeah. So in to your point, that's when you really began to get leverage yourself. And I think Mm -hmm. begin probably to see yourself as 
more than just the physician, but also the owner of this business. Oh, yeah, right? exactly. And there's, there's a shift in identity as you begin to embrace that, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. So early on, when I hired my very first nurse practitioner, which was a few years in, I remember very clearly sitting at the kitchen island with a paper and pencil going, oh, my God, I'm going to pay her 40 to $50 an hour. Like, I don't know if I can afford this. Like, can she generate this much revenue? And it was really like a heart-wrenching moment. And then she started and I looked at her schedule and she was seeing a good number of patients. And I was like, hey, I got to go pick up my dry cleaning. Let me just go do that. And it was the first time I found myself stepping outside of the office and watching it like continue to run. And it was this silly little errand that took me half an hour, but being able to extract myself from that minute to minute patient interaction and still have patients be cared for was a moment that really changed my perspective. And I knew that I could do both. I could be a really good doctor, but I could also manage from afar and watch it grow. Talk a little bit about some of the things that you've done, Christine, in running and growing the practice to grow yourself as an entrepreneur and as a business owner. I made a lot of bad decisions, like truly. (laughs) We all learn from somebody's mistakes. There are only others, I think. (laughs) Yeah. And it was always mine. And, you know, I think I say this to everybody now that's on my team that I was a really, really bad boss for a really long time. I blame the stress of I needed this practice to work. My family depended on it. And so every little thing that could have gone wrong would just my state of heightened anxiety bled into everything. I was not compassionate. I wasn't giving to my employees. Like I feel like you have to give to them. And I don't even mean monetarily. I mean, just give of yourself and understand them and understand their lives. I was completely closed off. And I had this attitude of everybody's replaceable. Every person is replaceable. Just pluck this person out, pluck another person in and everything will be fine. And that is absolutely not true. And it wasn't until I started to really value people that I became a much better business owner, boss, entrepreneur, person, just a better person, much more happy with myself now than I was back then. So yeah, it took a period of what I call the dark days of my entrepreneurship that turned it around for me. So has the School of Hard Knocks been the primary source of uh, education for you? Or have you engaged uh, coaches or, or consultants or things that have come alongside to help you through some of the different stages? No, I never hired coaches. I never hired consultants. I mean, I think I just never had the foresight to maybe do that. I always, I felt like I was always just kind of treading water and hoping the next thing would work. But I think it was really, I had a couple of people that were with me from the beginning. Those people that didn't take paychecks. I was 33 years old when I started the practice young, passionate, we're going to do this together kind of person to closed off, door closed to my office, just constantly like churning about the next thing. And they came to me. I remember it very clearly, Judy, who started with me, was like, some days I don't really know who you are anymore. And that was like a huge slap in the face for me because I owed her so much. I respected her so much. And I knew that I just had to change. And that was really, like you said, hard knocks that did it more than anything. Yeah. So looking back, describe for us a little bit, what is your practice like now? And then I'll follow up with a couple of questions to fill in some blanks there. Sure. So the practice was just me. 
like I said, two examining rooms, a couple hundred patients. It is now, there are 20 of us, so five physicians, 15 advanced practitioners. My staff of my mom and Judy are now 55. We have two buildings, 14 examining rooms, 20,000 plus patients that we're responsible for. So it is drastically different than it was in the early days. That's right. Yeah. You're running a thriving business on the outskirts of Philadelphia now. Right. So between then and now, talk about some of the key inflection points. Mm -hmm. I think you started in 2003. Is that about right? 2004. Yep. 2004. Yep. Okay. So between mm -hmm. 2004 and now, we've gone through a couple of presidential elections. We've gone mm -hmm. through a great recession. Uh, we've gone through a pandemic. What do you look back and say, oh, that year, this year, this point were some key I guess, springboards or changes or inflection points for the practice? Yeah. So I think the first one was when I hired Amy, the very first nurse practitioner, and just the understanding of to scale this thing would require more than just me. And I had to be able to trust someone else with my patients. You know, doctors are very territorial about their patients. So that was one. I think making sure that she was the right person was key because that could have failed miserably. And then we would have been in a very different place. Another key inflection point, I would say, was the Affordable Care Act when meaningful use of electronic medical records became a thing. That was around 2006. So we were only in paper charts for two years and we had to make this huge pivot to an electronic medical record. And that was daunting and expensive. But ultimately, I believe it was for the good. I know a lot of doctors hate their EMRs, but ultimately, I think it was really good. And then another inflection point, which was talk about hitting the lowest possible level was, you know, we had this trajectory of up, 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 doing great. We bought a big building nine years after we had started the practice, beautiful fit out, patients loved it. The team loved it. And then very quickly within three years, we outgrew that space. And so I was like, oh, well, we did it once. Let's do it again. Let's just buy another building, right? Let's buy another $1.4 million building. And my great plan was to have this doctor that I had met and made an offer to, and she had accepted to hire this doctor to work in this new building. And she was just going to churn the revenue. The building was going to pay for itself. No problem. Well, she was a dud. She was terrible. She was slow. She was unhappy. Uh, she was a little neurotic. So basically I had made this investment in this building. The bank does not care that you hired a dud. They're like, too bad, right? So I had, I'm straddled with this huge mortgage, nobody to work it. It was a terrible time. And it was bad because we'd enjoyed success for so long. We were on such a good trajectory and then psh, hit this rock bottom. And that's when I went back to the concept of you just need more people to do good work, right? And it can't just be one person because if one person flakes out, you're in trouble. So that's where I really started to understand I needed a team of clinicians that if one didn't work out, I had others that could carry the cost and the higher overhead of this new building. And I would say that took from 2016 to about 2018 to turn around just in time for COVID. <laughs> and then we had to deal with that. 
we can't just leave. And then there was a pandemic right. over. How was COVID for your practice? How did you navigate? How did the team pull together? How did you endure what arguably was one of the hardest times for anyone in medicine? Yeah. So you know how I was saying that some of it is just being at the right place at the right time? Well, on March 13th of 2020, I will never forget that day, I was in Philadelphia. I had a 13-year-old at the time, and I had promised her and two of her friends that I would take them to a concert in Philadelphia. And so we had this hotel room for this concert, and we got to the hotel, and within a couple hours, the concert was canceled because there was this virus, and people didn't know what's going to happen, so they canceled the concert. Well, we're stuck in this hotel room with three 13-year-olds. They're doing their thing, having their room service. They're happy as can be. And I was sitting in my room and I was like, what is this Zoom for healthcare thing? Let me just figure this out. That night, I bought a healthcare license for Zoom and set it up so that we could do telemedicine. So March 13th, this happened. The next day, the world closed and everybody had to just stop. And I was already set up to do telemedicine. I have goosebumps thinking about it because that was the moment that saved us because honest to God, we did not miss a beat. We converted all of those first day appointments to telemedicine. We got a system in place right away that would make it easy for patients. And that's really what saved us. So we did telemedicine for a really long time. And then we did, you know, a hybrid like most people. And we still do a fair amount of telemedicine for patients who want it. But that was really a turning point in our survival of the pandemic. And I think my growth as a leader too really started from that. Like I keep trying to tell people, like, I just got lucky. And they were like, no, you were so brilliant. You saved us with this Zoom healthcare. I'm like, I'll take the praise, but not really. But I think there was a lot of mutual respect that was garnered in that moment. And we didn't keep everybody. No, lots of people left. They just couldn't handle it. But I was able to carry on and have to change our operations at all. We didn't lay anybody off. We didn't curtail our operations. You know, the same staff we started with is the staff we have now. And it's actually grown quite a bit over the COVID years. That is amazing. The difference between brilliance and luck is perhaps just a matter of perspective. <laughs> so over the last 20 years, running, growing, having the autonomy and the stress and the risk of owning your own practice, what do you enjoy the most? What stands out in your mind as an advocate for independent medical practices? So over the last five or six years, I think the movement towards value-based care in medicine has been tremendous and so enjoyable for me. I know a lot of people feel like it's a grind and it's so hard to meet these metrics and earn these incentives, but what it has done for our practice is truly improve the quality of care that our patients receive. And there's very clear metrics that we can follow. So my diabetic patients on average have a much better level of glucose control. They're hospitalized much less frequently than they were five years ago. Our patients, like 90% of our patients who are eligible get their colorectal cancer screening on time versus five or six years ago when we were at like 45%. And that's because value-based care programs have allowed us two things. One, access to really good data about who our patients are that we really need to pay attention to. And two, financial incentives that we could reinvest into these programs to take good care of our patients. Like I have a full-time 
certified diabetes educator who all she does all day is take care of diabetic patients. I mean, that to me, I would years ago say I'd never be able to afford a luxury like that. So these programs have helped us focus more on taking really good care of patients instead of just churning patients in and out of the door. And that has made what I do as a practice owner, but even more so as a doctor, so much more satisfying. And those examples you give strike me as even just one of the core fundamentals of entrepreneurship in general, which is you don't have 18 layers of bureaucracy to go through to implement, say, Zoom for healthcare exactly. or diabetes educator. Whereas in, in a larger system, we have to decide how this is going to fit in and which department is going to pay for it. And are we going to be stealing patients from the clinical providers and their compensation? They're affecting their RVUs and on and on and on. That's right. I, I want to probe more on this because as I mentioned in the intro, we all know the trend in healthcare has been consistent for the last 15 years away from private practice medicine. There's definitely some statistical reasons for that. And I want to get your commentary on how that has affected you when we come right back from this break. Do you understand your personal cash flow? You know the combination of your monthly income and monthly expenses. Do you ever think about how much money you made last year and wonder, where did it all go? Understanding where your money goes today is essential to creating an actionable plan to achieve your financial goals for tomorrow. Take control of your finances by downloading the free personal cash flow worksheet. The Prosperous Doc podcast is underwritten by the financial planning firm of Spa Dameron Tenney. And you can download this free personal cash flow worksheet at sdtplanning.com and click on financial resources. Don't let another month of money confusion go by when you have access to free help. Again, the website is sdtplanning.com. Click on financial resources to download the free personal cash flow worksheet. And I'm back with Dr. Christine Mayer <laughs> talking about her passion for independent medical care, the practice that she runs thriving outside Philadelphia. Christine, as I was saying right before the break, we know the trend in medicine has been to have private practices like yours assimilated, merged, gobbled up by larger hospital systems for a variety of reasons. I know in just prepping for our, our show, there was confirmation of one of the things that I've observed, and that is that about 75% of the docs who say, I'm just going to join XYZ hospital system, it's two primary issues. It's contractual negotiations with the payers. I think I, we get better reimbursements if we join a larger group and um, help with the regulatory issues. You mentioned the EMR earlier, things like that. What are you seeing? And surely you've been approached by or been able to find yourself in conversations where you're being courted by one of the systems near you. Mm -hmm. What's that been like? And have you ever been tempted? I guess maybe I'll say. I was probably tempted in 2016 when I had a $1.4 million building I couldn't pay for, but really, I would say that was the only time. I think that negotiating contracts with payers is hard, and I'm sure I could do better if I was part of a bigger organization. And tech issues are expensive and, you know, we don't have the support that maybe a larger organization would have. But to me, I think private practice allows you to build a culture in your organization that you are proud to work in. 
And I, when I say you, I mean doctors, I mean their support staff, other clinicians, and it all comes down to that. I think a large institution or certainly like a private equity firm or venture capitalist could dangle dollar signs, maybe even more dollar signs, but they certainly can't build that culture. And at least in my team, people gravitate towards that. People want to work in a place they're proud of. They want to provide good care to patients. They want to feel like part of a family. They don't want to just have a good paycheck and nice benefits, at least most people, right? So that's what private practice can allow us to do as doctors and entrepreneurs is just build the culture that people want to be a part of. And it bleeds into the community. So it's your team, it's you, it's your patients, it's your patients' families, it's all of it. And I just don't think being a hospital-owned practice or being a VC-owned practice affords you that. For somebody listening to this thinking, yeah, it must be nice, you know, or wish I'd started my own practice at 33, what, what do you think are some of the myths or objections that people have? I think... They think that people probably think they need to have some sort of business degree to run a successful medical practice. And you really don't. I think it gets back to the patient experience. I think if you're a physician and you went into medicine to provide patients with an excellent experience, you can run a successful medical practice. But notice I said experience and not care, because there's a lot of physicians out there that provide excellent care and a terrible experience, right? So it's the whole package. It's understanding the environment that patients are comfortable in. It's understanding the access that patients need. So my office is open seven days a week. And if you had asked me you know, a few years ago, what do you think about that? I'd be like, that's insane. Nobody's gonna wanna work on Sunday and no patients are gonna come on Sunday. Guess what? There's lots of people willing to work on Sunday and patients flock on Sundays. So it's really just keeping the patient experience first and foremost, and then everything follows from there. There are so many players in healthcare now, from the hospital systems, the insurance companies, the lobbying groups, governmental agencies, governmental agencies. <laughs> Do you think there is, is there respect for independent practices like yours, or do you feel like you're... I don't know, scorned or dismissed as not having the volume or the the power and influence of being hospital affiliated. I think it's changing. So the hospital affiliated practices, it's such a different beast because they, if you're a primary care doctor in a practice owned by a hospital, guess what you're doing? You're referring to specialists within that hospital system. You are helping the big ship continue to turn, but not to your own benefit. So primary care practices owned by hospitals they generate maybe two or three times the revenue I do just based on reimbursements because they're affiliated with a hospital, right? But if you talk to doctors that work in those practices, there's a high degree of dissatisfaction. Those doctors are definitely punching in, punching out, but there's very little autonomy. Like you said, if you need a new examining table, it's you know six-month board decision. So I think that those types of things are starting to be recognized as negatives to the hospital-owned practices. And if we could just get our results out to the universe, look what a private practice can do, especially in the arena of value-based care, we'll garner so much more respect. I was just in Washington, D.C. last week talking to congressional staffers about this very thing, about we just need more of us 
in the universe to improve our healthcare situation overall. Now, that falls on deaf ears or not, who knows? But at least they were willing to listen. (laughs) Well, and that brings up a great question, which is if you were king for a day or queen for a day and could influence the regulatory environment that you operate in, what is there a change or um, or a piece of legislation or something that you think would materially impact the environment, not only for independent physicians, but also for all the patients and their families they can impact? Oh, that's a loaded question. I mean, first of all, I think perpetuating and growing the alternative payment models is huge. So the fee-for-service model just doesn't work. I mean, first of all, that just facilitates the quantity over quality philosophy. If I see you, I'll get paid for seeing you, regardless of how much time or how well I take care of you, right? So I think the alternative payment models, the shared savings program, so allow us to provide efficient, high-quality care, but give us a piece of that savings so we could reinvest it into our practices and our people. So that's huge too. And then the last thing I'll say is take away some of the nonsensical barriers, the time we spend on prior authorizations, the time we spend on referrals, the crazy amount of documentation that's required to check the boxes. If we could just get back to practicing high quality, high value medicine, obviously the patients win. I mean, that's been made clear over and over again. Those are great. And you hit them right off the cuff there. It's the (laughs) payment models, the bureaucracy, the headwinds. In some ways, it's we can run a really successful, high-quality practice and just get out of our way. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, Christine, thanks so much. I feel so inspired. I, this is one of the few conversations where I almost think, if I were in medicine, this is what <laughs> I would want to do. What advice do you have for two people that might be listening? The one is the resident or the individual still in training who's thinking about their career path, They're looking at the sordid landscape of medicine right now, the stress, the burnout, the opportunity, the beauty. But I'm thinking that new career, Doc, what's your message to them? And then what about your mid-career physician listening to this? Mm. Yeah, it might be nice. Must be nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm actually on a personal vendetta, or that's not the right word, mission to get people to get into primary care and the way to have happy primary care physicians is through private practice because you can't rely on an entity to write you a paycheck. I think when we have autonomy, when we're able to make those decisions, when we're able to tailor our schedule based on how not just we practice, but how our lives work, that creates physician satisfaction leads to high quality care. So the primary care physician that's autonomous You can't stop that doctor. And that is just the beginning of excellent care all around. So I would tell people who are still deciding, please consider primary care because you will touch patients in a way that you won't in any other specialty. My daughter is a second year med student in New York City. And she's like, nah, I want to do emergency medicine. I don't want to do primary care because she's so drawn by the acuity and the fast pace and this and that. But there's no relationship there. You don't get to follow your patients for 25 years and watch them get married and have kids and, you know, have grandkids. So I would implore people to really consider the longevity of the relationships in primary care. And then for the doctor who's maybe like, who can't retire yet, 
but really just done and is watching the dollars dangled before them from VC and hospitals, I would say, look at your patient care. If you get back to that, why did you go to medicine in the first place? You went into it because you care about people. You want to help people. If you could just get back to that and build your practice around that very simple concept, that patient experience, the satisfaction can be had. That's not to say every doctor could just be like, okay, I'm just going to start my own practice at at 45 years old, but maybe seek out the culture of a practice like that. Seek out a practice that's privately owned, where you'll have autonomy, where the culture is something you'd be proud to be a part of. Yeah, great words. Great words. So wrap up, last question. You have benefited from so many others uh, that have poured into you. Speaking of training, for example, or others that have come alongside you or supported you or worked without a paycheck. And I'm curious, I always like to give the guests a chance at the end of the show to give a shout out to someone or some key people that are have been instrumental in your journey. Who do you stand on the shoulders of to now do what you do? So first is my aunt, who is an internal medicine physician. Who, she's who? The, her name is Aunt Venus. She's Venus, in awesome. New Jersey. All right. And uh, she continues to practice internal medicine to this day. She was my inspiration for med school in the first place. Number two is my mom, who made tremendous sacrifices throughout my entire career and training. And still to this day, at 78 years old, does my billing. So we would be nowhere without her. Three is my husband, who has carried the home front on so many occasions while I was building this practice. And then my practice manager, Claire, Judy, who started with me, everybody on the team right now, because these are the right people. We have such good bones now, and it took a really long time to get there, but this practice would not exist without each and every one of them. Well, in that case, then shout outs to Judy, Claire, mom, Chris, and Aunt Venus. Uh, You're in the mix too. So Christine, thanks so much for just making time in the midst of what is a busy life and busy schedule and a great practice. Congratulations to you, your whole team for the culture you've built and to all the patients that you serve. Thanks for being Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for making a couple minutes for the Prosperous Doc podcast today. If uh, you have suggestions for guests or even topics, maybe you don't know someone, but you know something you'd like to uh, me to talk about on the show, you can email me directly, shane at prosperousdoc.com. Certainly welcome your reviews on uh, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. We'll see you back here next time. This episode of the Prosperous Doc podcast is over, but you're not alone on your journey. Spa Dameron Tenney has been helping physicians and dentists prosper through financial planning for over 60 years. To connect with us, visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Join us on the next episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast.